Hi, it's Baz. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Life Pedagogic from CFEY's Youth and Education Podcast. In this series of podcast episodes, we're interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These exploratory open discussions will invite you into the speaker's world and encourage challenging thinking. Hope you enjoy listening. How would you feel about the idea of dropping your career as it is and pursuing a wholesale change in a totally different field? What if the job you were leaving was one you enjoyed, that paid well and earned you a high status reputation? In July 2017, shortly after her 58th birthday, Lucy Kellaway quit what she described as the world's nicest job as a columnist and reporter for the Financial Times to train as a maths teacher in an inner London school. She left a job where she had autonomy over her work, nice colleagues and the freedom to write about whatever interested her to go back to the beginning with a pretty daunting journey. What motivated her? The sense that after years as a writer, she knew she was no longer getting better at her job. The challenge had gone. She was so invested in her decision to change direction that she also co-founded Now Teach, an organisation designed to encourage others to take similarly bold moves in their own lives. In this episode of The Life Pedagogic, I speak to Lucy about her experiences before and after her move into teaching, what she has learned, and where this huge life change has taken her, personally and professionally. I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, wonderful. Lucy Kellaway, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Thank you. Um, as usual, we're going to start today with a little bit of a kind of topical discussion. Um, and I wanted to focus this time on maths, as I know that that was where you began your teaching career. So earlier this year, we know that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced his ambition to ensure that every young person studies some form of maths up to the age of 18. Uh, and in a piece that you wrote for the FT about this, you challenged the initiative as ruinously expensive, counterproductive and borderline cruel citing the high numbers of young people who already have to go through multiple GCSE maths resets to achieve a pass at 16. Do you feel the importance that we're placing on maths is misjudged, uh, and particularly in a world where technology can increasingly kind of do the work for people? Look, I love maths. I started off being a maths teacher because I thought maths was the single most important thing that kids needed to to know, not necessarily because they'd all be future coders, but just because there's something about logical thinking and brain development that maths is incredibly important. So I'm absolutely not a sort of maths denier. Uh, On the contrary, Um, I just wanted... Rishi Sunak to come into some of the schools that I've uh, that I've taught in and look at what maths is actually like look at what maths is actually like for the kids who hate it and want to give it up and I think what he would see is a system that has already failed them by the time they're 16. That was where my borderline cruel bit came on. If you have a kid, and these aren't these aren't just one or two. This is something like a quarter of all children. These are huge numbers of children who fall out with maths at primary school for a whole series of reasons. They then go to secondary school, they're put in the bottom set, they 
have the experience of doing badly. They're then put on foundation GCSE, which is the lower of the two uh, papers, but even that is much too difficult for them. Um, Actually, foundation maths is really very obscure, a lot of it, and a whole lot of stuff that there's no, you know, I mean, can you talk to me? You're an English graduate. Can you talk to me about standard form? Could you do a, no? I was terrible at maths. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't be proud of it, by the way. But you know, whatever. Um, oh no, I got I got the results in the end. I had a okay. very good teacher who really pushed me and okay, kept me well, on track. Oh, good for her, him. Um, but yes, I mean, I I think that so students who don't like it are made to do things that are too difficult. They already feel that they're failures. So guess what? They fail. Um, they fail their GCSE, and then under the current system, those students have to go on until they pass. And do they pass? No. If they start off failing, quite a few of them end go on failing worse and worse and worse. So this system is absolutely atrocious. So. Um, I think the idea, it's just, a. I think his his thing comes from somewhere good, thinking maths is so important, everyone should go on doing it. Uh, but I just don't think it's like that. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think you know, we've we've covered research in this area, and we've we've we know a lot about um, you know a lot of the, the fear that comes with maths uh, from such an early age, and what a barrier barrier that is over time, just builds and builds, and that can be so problematic for young people. Um, in twenty twenty one, we conducted some research that found that the connection between maths performance at key stage two and pupils' eventual results at GCSE level is actually stronger for for maths in particular than it is for other the subjects, which means that pupils who are behind in maths at primary level find it harder to catch up with their peers at 16 than those who are behind in other subjects like English. Um, and, you know, this this raises a lot of problems. Um, as you say, you propose in your piece that um, instead of kind of more maths later, what we really need is that better maths earlier on to help those pupils who struggle with the subject and give them that really strong grounding. Alongside that kind of greater support at primary level, is there anything that you feel that secondary school teachers can particularly do to support children, especially around that transition phase from primary into secondary, to help them to succeed sort of through key stage three as they then go on into their GCSEs? Yeah, I mean, I think this isn't passing the buck, but I think there's an assumption that that the kids know things at primary um, because they will have had to, to get through their SATs, they will have had sort of various quite advanced things in maths sort of drilled into them and they, they might know it through memory, but they don't really know it. Mm. I think maths is, is sometimes started at too advanced a level in secondary. And that's not for the, for the students who have loved maths at primary, but I think it's a very strong argument for setting and, and, you know, really a lot of setting. And so that secondary schools really need to be on a recovery program for probably the first year where they're not necessarily trying to push through the syllabus, but they're just trying to repair the damage. And as you said, um, do something about the fear. Um, so um, I, I also think that the at, at, at this age, schools should put their best maths teachers onto the bottom sets. Um, the the top set maths um, they teach themselves. Those students find maths so easy at the beginning of secondary. They don't need any teaching. I mean, even I taught, I wasn't a very good maths teacher, but I taught some top set and they did brilliantly because they taught themselves, basically. 
but that real skill goes into the um, goes into the lower sets where, as I say, it's a matter of fear. So it's not just a mathematical um, problem; it's a psychological one too. Mm, that's so interesting, isn't it? And I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean about the, the the sort of top set experience. Sometimes it feels like a privilege to teach those students, <laughs> isn't it? Because they they're running with it, whether you yeah. whether you're there or not, almost. Um, yeah. But you're right, that intervention with with those young people who are struggling is is just crucial. Um, uh, That's really helpful. Thank you. Really interesting. Um, I want to take us back in time now. So we're going to go back, as we always do on The Life Pedagogic, to thinking about your youth growing up in London. What kind of positive memories do you have from that time? Um, Of my schooling, do you mean? In general, what was it like? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I was really the luckiest person on earth. I mean, I grew up in um, a sort of lefty part of North London um, where you could live in a beautiful Georgian house. I think my grandmother bought it for 500 quid. So, um, you know, so I lived somewhere that was very beautiful, surrounded by a lot of like-minded families. Nobody was frightened about where their kids were. I'm still old enough to have played in that. We, you know, we played hopscotch in the street. Um, Mm. We all walked together to our primary school. I think the general idea was that your parents maybe take you for the first couple of years, but I can't even remember that mine did that. Maybe they did, but certainly from by the time I was seven, we were walking to school and even more astounding um the the school was on the uh, was by it was close to hampstead heath and at lunchtime the school gates were opened and we were all just allowed to roam around on the heath at lunchtime on our own oh wow <laughs> and i mean that is that is unthinkable now but what a wonderful way to grow up way before computers way before technology um, where we sort of explored and played and actually were very bored a lot of the time. So we read. I mean, I read mm. in a way that I'm not sure, I mean, very few children do now, just not because I was a sort of brainy bookworm, because there wasn't anything else to do. Um, and so, yes, and I looked at, look at my own children and their, you know, how they grew up. And I thought in some ways it's very similar. They were still in North London, but the time has really changed. And mostly as far as the child's experience is concerned, it's changed for the worse. Mm, those demands on young people's attentions now are so many and varied, aren't they? Mm. Um, thank you very much. Uh, you you went for your primary school to, to Gospel Oak Primary and then on to Camden School for Girls, uh, where your mother was an English teacher. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy your time at school there? What was it like learning in a school where your mum worked? Well, I mean, that could have been hideous, but my mum was a beloved English teacher. Um, I saw what teaching from the heart looked like from watching my mum. And although mum didn't teach me, actually, she did teach me after A-levels for Oxbridge classes, but she didn't teach me until then. But I was just so proud of her because I knew how much 
that my friends who did have her, how amazing they thought she was. So that was fine. It was less good the other way because I was very naughty and <laughs> I think Anne quite lazy. And so for my mum to have to hear her colleagues in the staff room um, not necessarily love teaching me was a bit more difficult. But, I mean, Camden was an amazing place to be in the 70s. It was... Uh, I mean, it must have been quite easy trying to educate girls like that because, you know, it was a selective school from generally people from families that had loads of books in them. There was a a very intellectual environment, but it also was the 70s, for God's sake, which was really the 60s. -hmm. Um, And so we were all, first of all, hippies and then punk rockers, and we wanted to explore and be creative, and that was what the school wanted us to do as well. Um, I managed to emerge from school having really learned nothing at all. Um, But do I regret it and wish I'd gone somewhere stricter? No, I absolutely don't. I absolutely don't. I think Camden gave me something about originality and creativity that has been of lasting value to me. However, that was only because I came from a privileged family to start off with. I think... If that had not been the case, um, Camden would have been a disaster for me. Or my attitude at Camden would have been a disaster. Um, mm. A lot of people learned a huge amount there. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? We yeah. that a lot in our work, certainly. Um, we're doing some work in Camden at the moment, actually, and it's still got a brilliant atmosphere. Um, the schools there, some fabulous schools there. Um, as you kind of touched on a little bit there, you've kind of previously described yourself as as quite a swap up to sort of around key stage three, but um, then a bit of a downward slide as you got into those those tricky teenage years towards the A-levels. Um, while those results at that kind of stage were maybe not exactly what you'd hoped for, um, it sounds like your experiences at school kind of did help you to prepare for the future in other ways in terms of your personality and, and developing as an individual. Yeah, I think they did. I mean, I think a lot of that just comes from family and luck. And But I did. I mean, I got horrendously bad A-level results. And then by some complete fluke of luckiness, and, and uh, I did manage to do the Oxbridge exams um, after my A-levels and I got in. Um But that meant that I arrived at Oxford feeling that I was probably the most stupid person who had ever got in because I thought, here, all these other people have got A's at A-level and, oh, dear, I seem to have failed my French altogether. And and so then I worked very hard. But I think there was a sort of, and this would have made me probably nauseating to my fellow students, but there was a kind of kind of coolness about being a Camden girl that I could hide behind when I was actually probably feeling as inadequate as everyone else I thought Mm. at least I've got the right trainer (laughs) makes all the difference doesn't it (laughs) (sighs) a lot of people have a lot of kind of high expectations about going to Oxbridge did you I mean did it live up to what you'd hoped for from from the experience I've got a very complicated relationship with Oxford. I mean, on one hand, it allowed me to educate myself, I mean, which I'd completely failed to do before. It completely taught me how to think. Um, It changed my life entirely. It also gave me that, ooh, look at me, I'm Oxbridge badge which is fantastically um, useful signaling device and was even more so then than it is now, I think. But 
Um, so that was wonderful. I made some lifelong friends. I really engaged um, intellectually with it. So that was wonderful. But the hesitation in my voice is I sort of hated it at the same time. Um, there is something so complacent and so sort of blinkered and little world about our finest academic institutions, which is so much not what um, academic places should really be like. Um, uh, so I think I felt very trapped there. I, I, I also think it makes you feel very inadequate too. And partly that's the beauty of the buildings and the how ancient the institution is. But I felt very privileged to be there. I was incredibly lucky to get in. I am very grateful for the education, but still, I don't like going back. I don't mm -hmm. like going back. And what I particularly despise are the people who think, and you quite often sort of see it in parents who sort of feel that this is somehow the be all and end all. And if by some, you know, remember some sort of woman who I knew posting on sort of, Facebook sort of terrible news so and so you know didn't get an offer from Cambridge sort of like somebody had died um mm. so I really hate that snobbery and the feeling that the only thing that matters is Oxbridge and everything else is irrelevant it's just it's damaging and it's just not true very out of date now yeah um... who cares <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good summary of what it's like. There are so many opportunities that can come from it, but um, the exclusivity is impossible to, to deny, isn't it? Yeah. And when you go out into the real world, that is, you know, thrown into sharp relief. Like yeah. um, you went on from Oxford to your first job, which was working in the foreign exchange dealing room of um, Morgan Guarantee, I want to say. Yes, clever. Yes, no, I, I, which is of JP Morgan now, but it was Morgan Guarantee in those days. That's right. Um, and you've described it as, as a pretty hateful experience. Uh, what did you particularly dislike about, about that first job? Well, it, it, it wasn't hateful at the beginning because we were in New York. I mean, in those days, they took us, they took this whole load of sort of, I don't know, wet behind the ears Brits. And we were on Wall Street being trained for a whole year. It was still in the era of jobs for life. And so that sort of yeah. investment was worthwhile. So I adored my training year. It was such fun being in New York. And then I was sent back, as you say, to the foreign exchange dealing room in London. Um, uh, it was hideous. In, it, so it was both very, very boring. So what I was actually doing was trying to persuade companies to buy or sell their foreign currencies with us. Mm. Uh, I didn't really care whether they did it with us or elsewhere. So, you know, it was not at all intellectually interesting. And you do your silly sort of sales spiel each time. Um, but it was very stressful because if you booked any of those trades the wrong way around, as I sometimes did, you were possibly lost sort of millions of pounds. So that dip, so, that, so being both both um, stressful and boring, it was also um, not a great time and place to be a young woman and a young posh woman either. <laughs> um, I had so, one of that. <laughs> quite, you know, the, there were the real sort of old Barrow boys and the foreign exchange markets and 
I, I don't know. They gave me a slightly hard, hard time. I mean, I deserved that. And I think I did manage to kind of shrug it off. That wasn't why I left. Why I left was I, uh, I couldn't understand what the point of it was. And I really didn't enjoy it one day to the next. And also, if you look at the people who've been done it for a long, doing it for a long time, you look at them and you think, do I want to be like them? No, not at all. And then you, know, you must get out. Yes, that's a scary thought sometimes, isn't it? When you look at the old garden and think, I'm not sure it's not sure that's for me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you went on then to work for the Investors Chronicle, I believe, and won the Wincott Young Financial Journalist Award, um, which is very exciting, before you went on to get your big role as com- columnist at the FT, which is how many people will know you pre-teaching um, in 1985. Did any of those skills that you sort of honed as a journalist over over your time at the FT come in useful when you later moved into teaching? So did the skills come in handy when I moved into teaching? Um, I think a lot of them were quite unhelpful in a way, um, in that I was really quite badly organized as a journalist because you could sort of afford to be. I think the only thing I have to do is write this column and I may do it in a very chaotic way. And I'd never had the discipline to try and have systems for anything. And teaching is not like that. You have to, and I'm still, look, I'm seven years in, I'm still really, really struggling with it. So it taught me that. Um, <laughs> then there were other things that, you know, as a columnist at the FT, at least if you're moving in FT circles, people sort of vaguely think you're something. And then when you're a trainee teacher, uh, uh, they really don't, they haven't heard of the FT, they don't care anyway. And how come you're being so useless as a teacher? So none of that was helpful. Um, two things, though, I think helpful that. Both of them are about communication. And even though the sort of communication is different, I think there is a sort of common denominator somewhere about you have messages that you have to get across in both fields and you have to think of the best possible way of doing that. So I think that there is some shared ground there. And then finally, thick skins. You need a really thick skin if you're a columnist because you should see the stuff that people post under your articles. You know, I can't believe you were paid to write this. Um, and then if you're dealing, if you're screwing up in front of 32, 15-year-olds, you need a thick, thick skin for that too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's useful to have had an editor breathing down your neck as well, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> putting that pressure on. <laughs> kids kids are even worse. Yes. <laughs> um Brilliant. And uh, I mean, you had a, a wonderful career at the FT over over three decades, um, some really fabulous work, um, really widely recognised. And then you made the enormous decision to leave and, and to embark on this incredible new adventure as a teacher. Um, what was that training process like for you? I think back to my my training year um, as a teacher and, and it was it was it was full on um how did it feel were you surrounded by very young new grads yeah, and- I, I don't know I now think it's a little bit like childbirth in that <laughs> um you sort of remember kind of somewhere that it was very painful at the time but you've sort of blanked it so mm. 
I think now I might say, oh, my training year, yes, it was, yeah, well, you know, I learned a lot of things. It was, but I mean, actually, if I'm honest about it and really try and think back to it, it was really stressful. It was incredibly stressful because there's no practicing to be a teacher. Any other job you get to practice, or, you know, even if you're a journalist, you've written your first article for real, you'll have a sub-editor who will rewrite it for you before anyone actually gets to read it. Teaching isn't like that. And there are so many bits of it that you have to be good at simultaneously. I was utterly unprepared for that. I was particularly, and this is awful as a sort of ageist thing, but I was shocking with the tech, um, among other things. So, you know... having to remake my idea of myself as someone who was actually quite bad at their job, having been really quite good at my job, that was sort of shocking. But all of that was a side issue to the amazing thing about teaching, which, you know, it's if you are going to love it, you really love it. Even in that first horrible lesson, I just thought standing in front of a class of teenagers is brilliant and I love it and that hasn't and I've got a lot better at it um although I'm still not brilliant in a lot of ways but but I still love that and and I find that amazing I find it rejuvenating I you know it's the best sort of midlife crisis that one could possibly have um and to the extent to which you're kind of thinking before oh life's a bit meaningless this is all a bit pointless There is nothing about teaching, the teaching itself, that would ever make anyone think that because it just isn't. That's so true, isn't it? The experience of being in the room with the young people and and also all of the things that come kind of around the classroom with the young people as well. Those moments where you're waiting for someone, you know, whose mum's a bit late to collect them or when they come to you at lunchtime to ask about something they're interested in. All those moments are so kind of special. Yes, they are. They really, really are. Definitely. Um, you started out as a, as a math teacher in inner London um, in the secondary school Mossbourne Community Academy, um, which is known for its good results and, and pretty strict approach. How would you describe your teaching style when you began there? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, mean, I, I was born in Camden School for Girls. So, you know, we all had blue hair. We were kind of you know, the sort of idea that you just need to come up with some amazing original question and everything will be fine, could not have been further from the Mossbourne model, which is no excuses. It's Mm. no excuses. It's zero tolerance. The kids wander around the corridors in silence. So I was more culturally at sea than I've ever been in my life. Um, And I think at the beginning, I found that profoundly shocking. Actually, as I've gone on to work in lots of other schools where the behavior is much looser, I've been slightly thinking, take me back to Mossbourne. I mean, I I have masses of respect for the school. The school, it is an exam factory, but in a world where kids are judged by exams, it doesn't seem clear to me that that's a bad thing to be. if what is interesting is giving the kids the best possible start in life, Mossbourne really does that. It really, really does that. And the kids do astoundingly well and so much better than in other schools where those systems aren't in place. So, you know, I have real respect for Mossbourne. I found it was too far away from my heart to be... I mean, I did do four years there in the end, in the Mossbourne group. Um, But... 
I really need something a bit more freewheeling because it's too much of a strain for me being in such a straitjacket all the time. It's interesting. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a place for it. And some children really thrive in that kind of environment. And it's just what they need to have those really clear boundaries um, and, and to know exactly what needs to be done when and yeah. where and how. And for other children, it just doesn't fit. And I, and I think, you know, the idea that that is the same for teachers is is fair, right? Yes. That's a, we all find ourselves in different places that suit our nature. And yeah. um, and I can I can absolutely understand that. Yeah. Um, what was your kind of greatest success at, at that time? When you were, my when you were my greatest new. your greatest success when you were quite new oh what was my greatest success I think if I think back to um, that very very first class that I taught uh, where so this was a top set year eight class I and they're very used to maths being like that. I started talking to them how insurance risk was priced because I spent some of my time as a non-executive director on the board of Admiral Car Insurance Company. I can't, it was, I know that sounds very random, but it was related to some idea of risk or prob- probability, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Factors that affect probability and probability of car accidents. And I just felt as I was talking to them, these are these are very these were very very able um, twelve year olds. I felt that every twelve year old in the room was suddenly really engaging with the idea of pricing car insurance risk, and I did. I felt profoundly um, excited and happy about that because I thought they can really see now how the maths of probability, um, well, it's very relevant to their risk of having an accident themselves, but also really, really relevant to the success of a business too. And I think that was the first time I felt that I'd really made a link, which is, you know, after all, the point of all of this, between the um, education of the curriculum and a much broader education that um, I hope will stand them in good stead later on. Young people need that so much, don't they? I think yes. it's something that I constantly struggled with as an English teacher. You know, when you're when you're doing poetry or something like that, and they say, "But but why? <laughs> you know, what am I, what am I going to do with this?" And you think, "Well, transferable skills." <laughs> but yeah, that that can really make a difference. And it's wonderful when you hit the yeah. hit the right note with a class. Really yeah. exciting. Um, and then um, you moved from from your work in London um, up to the northeast, which is a, again a huge jump, a, a, a very big culture shift. Um, and you also moved on to teaching economics, um, which you have a real passion for. Um, how? What was the kind of biggest difference about this experience to, to how you started out? Okay, so actually, I'd already started teaching business studies and economics in London. Um, uh-huh. So I only did maths for one year. And the mm-hmm. reason that I only did that for one year was really that what I wanted to do, that sort of sharing of experience, it is much harder with maths because what you're mm-hmm. really, you know, if you're trying to, I don't know, teach Pythagoras's theorem, um, I can't really apply that to the experiences of a journalist. So I have been doing um, economics and business studies for a while. Um, and 
yes, as you say, a really sort of mad and scary move to move and, and do it sort of nearly 300 miles away. Um, I, I've, I taught in my first year in a Catholic school in Gateshead um, where they didn't actually offer economics and I was teaching business studies. And it was so, so interesting just comparing the London school to the Gateshead school. This is a successful school in the region, very traditional, very Catholic. I now can cross myself very fluently. Um, but, I, you know, I, I at the end of the first couple of weeks, I thought there's something missing here. What is it? And I decided it was competitiveness. It was competition that in the sort of Mossbourne type schools and even in Mulberry, another school that I taught in in London, all of these London kids are born in competition. You know, mm. they're competing for a seat on the bus. They're competing later on for housing. They're, com- you know, real scarce resources, whichever way they look. Um, and that is very much there in education too. And it's much less the case up here. Um, and so I've been battling with that, that I'm not saying, oh dear, you know, this is awful, expectations are much lower. I'm kind of saying this is a different way to live and there's a lot of very good stuff about it. I mean, there's... Um, Mobility is much, much lower. Most of the kids who I taught last year went to local unis or or apprenticeships. They did not aspire to live elsewhere. And I was really amazed by that because I still had this idea that all of the best and the brightest will want to go to London because why wouldn't they? And that's where the most interesting jobs are and so on. And this may be partly to do with housing prices, they think they won't be able to afford to live in London. But I thought there was something else too, a real sense of community and rootedness and sort of happiness in a way that was much less there for my London students. And uh, yeah, I think that's really fascinating. So I'm speaking to you today from my new place of work, which is Newcastle Sixth Form College. I'm I'm on a training day today, but I will meet my first students next week, which I'm very, very excited about. And I don't know. I think that will be different because it's an it's a proper inner city school. It's much more diverse. Um, my old school was almost entirely white. Um, and that gives the, that diversity or lack of it gives the school a very, very different flavor and makes teaching in it very different. But so I'm really excited. It's going to be another new experience. And um Talk to me in a, in a term or two and I'll tell you how I'm doing. <laughs> yes, that, that run up to Christmas is always a tough one. <laughs> um, that's really, really interesting. Um, I, I'd love to know kind of how the students respond to subjects like uh, business and economics, because obviously it's, it's something that um, it's not something that all students are doing. It's, it's something they've kind of opted for. Are you getting that passion from the, the students about the subject? Um, well, I only taught business studies last year. Um, This year I'm teaching my real passion, which is economics. And so Mm. we will see how we go with that. Um, I think I found, and this may be a huge generalization, but the, the one thing that I found frustrating was 
you know, as a journalist, I try and get students to engage with the news and engage what is what's happening and constantly look, be looking at business and economic news on, you know, BBC website or maybe even the FT. Um, and I found it very, I found it much harder um, trying to engage my students in that. And I think that's because most, of, you know, just the rest of the world feels a longer way away. And... Mm. I don't think that on the whole the students feel as connected or as much a part of what's happening in the world around. And I think that's very understandable but really worrying. Um, So, you know, it's been a struggle actually with all of my classes to try and get them to engage properly with the news, but I have found it hardest of all up here and and I would say I was really only successful with a fairly small number of students which is really disappointing. That's fascinating I think it's it's a it's an interesting one isn't it because we see some of it as well from a sort of fatigue perspective with young people that increasingly they're kind of some young people are, are, are very invigorated by things in the news that they feel very passionate about and want to change but there's a certain cohort of young people who I think are fatigued by bad news particularly yes. in recent years and then if you're combining that with a kind of maybe an, a, an area that is not as well connected um that could be quite a difficult yes. um situation to be in yeah yeah I think so I, th- I think mm. that's absolutely right um of course, one of the other really key um, developments that, that we must talk about is is your work with Now Teach. Um, and I mean, I was astounded to read that that you set up, you co-founded the charity Now Teach, now Teach with um, with Katie Waldegrave, um, who's a social entrepreneur. While while you were teacher training, is that right? No, it was it was even crazier than that. <laughs> um, so I decided that I wanted to make the change and become a teacher um, in the, I don't know, I think it was sort of, yeah, it was in the summer. And I spoke to Katie and I said, actually, why don't I do it? um, Why don't we recruit people for that same year? So in a way we set it up, we set it up in my last year at the FT. So that last year we were busy and the the FT was so nice to me and gave me lots of time off and, and allowed me to write pieces in the FT recruiting our future trainee teachers. Um, And so, but I do remember in that period getting a a very upsetting email from some woman who was in her fifties and who had been a journalist and had recently quit to become a teacher. And she had found it the most harrowing experience of her life. Um, She said it had made her mentally ill. She had dropped out. She didn't feel ready to do work of any sort. She said, I was doing the most irresponsible thing possible, trying to persuade other people to leave stable employment and become teachers when they had no idea how horrendous it was going to be. And her conclusion was that I was a sort of Pied Piper figure, um, a sort of leading inner derivative traders to their death in the classroom so I mean that really did give me pause and it made me think you know is this am I just showing huge amounts of hubris in doing this but um I think I only could have done it that way and it was so brilliant doing my training alongside other um people of roughly my age who had come from completely from different worlds and 
that was the case that year and has been the case every single year since then. It's hard being a teacher um, and people who have done other things successfully will may find slightly different challenges to 22-year-olds straight out of university. And the fact that we have this sort of gang of us is, A, really fun, but B, has been so helpful in retention. Because if you know something, if you've completely screwed up the tech and then you're chatting, chatting to someone else who's done something even worse, it makes you feel a whole lot better. Absolutely. And I would really encourage people to to go to your website and, and have a look at some of those those wonderful stories of the journeys that people have had, because there's some really great examples there. Uh, and it's very inspiring. I remember when you were when you were setting up, I was a journalist at the time and we I'm writing for an education paper and we, we were covering the developments as it went along. Um, so and what were you all yeah. saying? This is bound to fail, were you? Oh, this won't work. No, we were very excited by oh, yeah. it. Um, uh, it. I think it was expanding at the time that we were writing about it. So we were we were sort of covering the, the increasing success. Um, and I think it's yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic idea because as a, I remember standing in front of a class as a you know sort of twenty three year old, um, and when my sixth form kids came in, you know they're eighteen, um, and that is a, a very strange challenge, kind of being that close in age mm-hmm. and having that lack of life experience to share mm-hmm. with them. You know, I think uh, even even now, if I went back into teaching, I would have so much more to offer than I had at that time, um, and I think you know uh, kids have the potential of getting a really fascinating exciting experience with someone who's who's had a whole different life in a different area and and can bring that you know stories of 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 what they've learned with them I think it's yeah I really hope so I really hope so and there's so many decades between me and my sixth form students there's no question of there's no sort of question of us being mates it makes the sort of relationship very clear that I am there because I really care about them Mm. I really want to, and this is probably using very old-fashioned language, but I really want to educate them. That's not implying that they don't have any role in that themselves. Of course they do. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I feel the duty of my job very strongly in a way that I don't think at 22 I quite understood what duty was. Um, <laughs> and I think the students really feel that and that is something that comes from my age I think directly um that that you know I make it very very clear to them that it is my job to make them succeed and I take that job incredibly seriously Mm. um and and I don't think I would have quite had the confidence I I would have felt too unsure of myself much younger to be able to spell it out to them like that Mm. it brings a lot of weight I think um, yeah. which is which is really valuable um you have sort of more generally you've you've championed the idea of, of gray trainees in a variety of industries uh, including journalism what advice would you perhaps give to other organizations that are considering introducing opportunities for later stage career changes um well i mean i think through now teach we've absolutely well we've proved various things we've proved what an appetite there is out there for people to change careers. So when um, I said that, you know, in the FT, the first thing that I wrote saying I'm leaving to be a teacher, come with me. I had a thousand emails from people who just saying, yes, yes, please. Because, you know, people get fed up with what they're doing and no one is showing them a way out. So of that thousand, only a very small minority were really 
wanting or suitable to be teachers. But it just, you know, and and, and now I guess we've had about 700 people through and in, we get bigger every year. But this is still a tiny proportion of the number of people who want to change careers. So um, I think, first of all, there is um, great demand great demand from the point of view of the worker, but there should also be, and so I think that the missing piece is from employers. Mm. You know, employers whinge on about how difficult it is to find people with the right sort of skills, and, you know, they're often incredibly rude about school leavers. They're coming into the workplace without the key skills that they want. What about everybody sitting down again and thinking you can be a trainee at any age? I, I, the only, I mean, the, the only good reason why that doesn't work could be financially. That obviously, if you're a trainee, you're going to be on a much lower salary. But if we all know that is very likely to be the model, then at times of our life when we're maybe earning a bit more in a job that maybe we don't like, we kind of even our earnings out over our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely this is possible in some way. Um, and... So what I would like to see is miles more imagination and flexibility from employers. I think if any sort of professional employer sort of, you know, put a flag up and said, 50-somethings come this way, we'll completely retrain you in whatever it happens to be, I think great candidates will be queuing around the block. Um, so I think it's sort of doable, but nobody's doing it. Mm, mm. And and there is, as you say, there is demand. So yeah, it's a really yeah. exciting model. And in terms of our kind of listeners for this podcast, um, many of whom will be um, will be based in schools. What would you say to um, teachers, school staff who maybe have someone coming into their school um, and learning the career afresh later in life? How can they support someone in that role and help them to to really succeed and make the most of it? Um. See, I don't want to go on about the technology thing because some of our now teach people are brilliant on tech. Um, I think I think they need to just look as a person. I think um, I actually wanted to be treated like all the other. Mm. Um, 22-year-old trainees. In terms of learning the job, there was nothing special about me. Um, So I wanted just to be invited to the drinks with everyone else. So I would say just kind of treat your more aged trainee exactly like everyone else and then enjoy the differences as they start appearing. Um, so I, you know, I like to think I was fantastically helpful to my younger colleagues, both at helping them with their mortgage applications and at helping them sort of manage upwards a bit more, do the office politics, manage their time better. Say, come on, look, that's a waste of time. SLT want that, but oh, for God's sake, it's a complete waste of time. I'm not doing it. I suggest you don't do it either. Um, so I think, yeah, so I, I was a sort of slightly informal shop steward stroke financial advisor to my very nice colleagues and they just amused me so much I really just liked arguing with them hearing their views they all kind of thought that I some of them thought I was 
oh, very reactionary in my views. And some of them I thought were slightly snowflakeish. But we had really great debates. And that made the life in the staff room just so much more fun. And I've loved all of that. And 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 in my new school that I've just joined a couple of days ago, I've got a whole new group of 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 colleagues and you know they're nearly all very considerably younger than me but that's great I love it. There's a lot to be said for that diversity of experience isn't there and that you know being able to share things from different perspectives within the same group is is really um really helpful. Yes and com- and completely bonding with people who are 40 years younger than you because you've just reacted in the same way to something that's happened in school to be able to say God, isn't she irritating? Um, or, oh, isn't that boring? Um, it's just a lovely thing, a really, really nice thing to be able to do. So, yeah, I've, I've adored all that. Yes, one of my favourite colleagues when I started out was was a lot older than me, but had the same music taste. And that was, you know, that's yeah. enough, isn't it? Yeah. That common ground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so nice. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for giving up such a lot of your time, particularly on a really busy day when you're getting ready for the new term. I really appreciate it. And there's just two more questions that I'm going to ask that we always ask at the end of our episodes of The Life Pedagogic. And the first is um, thinking back on your career. This might be an easy one for you. Thinking back on your career, is there anything that you've really changed your mind on? And if so, what changed it? Um... Yeah, becoming a teacher has taught me that the views I used to hold are not necessarily right. That there are more ways of thinking, that it, or rather it's taught me that the work, that I've changed my mind on the size of the world, really. So at the FT, we would we all kind of thought the same thing and we were writing for people who thought the same thing and who had similar experiences. And to go and teach in a school where uh, you're suddenly in a minority, massive minority, a sort of old middle-class white person and realising that the views that your colleagues and your students hold on practically every subject are really different to yours, that is that has been absolutely fascinating. So I've changed my mind on all sorts of things because of that. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and the final question, um, what two things would you most like to change about the English education system, if you could? I mean, where does one begin? <laughs> I think, where does one begin? I would like to see less. Um, I would like to see a small rowing back from the emphasis on exams. I feel that the way I teach is more boring and gives the students less of lasting value because I understand that it is my job to teach to exams. I would like that to be in some way lessened, but be really clear, I'm not saying get rid of exams. We have to examine in some way, we have to examine and test, but we don't need to have the whole of school life directed at those tests. Mm. 
it's a topic that preoccupies us a lot at CFUI. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, anything else? No. no. Wonderful. Smash. It's been, it's such a pleasure talking to you, Alex. Real, real pleasure. And um, bloody hell, you've done your homework. You're obviously going to be a completely brilliant journalist. Um, anyway, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to all week. So thank you very much for making the time. Oh, not at all. Okay, back to my training. Good luck with the training and uh, good luck with the new term. I hope it all goes well. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much Bye. for your time. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Life Pedagogic. We love making this podcast. And if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things you can do to help us. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who you think will find it interesting. And three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to get in touch with us using the links below in the show notes. See you back here for the next episode.